Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our meditation this Sunday is our second lesson, 1 Corinthians 15, 35-49, which is printed for you in your bulletin. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, the problem some people had with the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead was a serious one. As we saw in our reading and sermon last week, uh, the Holy Spirit, writing through the Apostle Paul, was very clear and direct about it. If the dead are not raised, then Christ himself was not raised, and your faith is futile. There's no point in being a Christian at all. And we can concern ourselves only with squeezing every last bit of pleasure we can out of this life, because in the end it'll be all we have if there is no resurrection. But Paul recognized that the resurrection skeptics in the Corinthian congregation, probably influenced by pagan Greek philosophy, were still, even after that was pointed out, were still going to have a hard time accepting these truths and a hard time looking forward to a new life in a new body. So he moves his defense of the resurrection forward by addressing their next challenge to it. But someone will object. How can it be that the dead are raised? With what kind of body are they going to come? Their objection at this point sounded like a logical one. Essentially, they were saying that it it just doesn't make sense to believe in a bodily resurrection of the dead because we don't know how it could possibly work. Left unstated is an objection less logical and more psychological. I don't want to be raised to life with the same body I died with. We can certainly understand that sentiment. When we consider the fact that almost everyone dies with a defective or damaged body because disease, injury, or just old age is what brought death in the first place, The thought that the same corpse we put in the ground will live again is alternatively sad, creepy, laughable, and scary. But that kind of zombie resurrection is not at all how Christians will be raised from the dead. And Paul does not hesitate to call out those who raise this objection. You are being foolish. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that will be, but a bare seed, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body of the kind he wanted it to have, and to each of the seeds he gives its own body. The apostle doesn't just call their objection foolish. He calls the objectors foolish. Because the thing they claim to be beyond their ability to know is something illustrated before their eyes all the time and and that they have observed all their lives. That bodies go into the ground in one state and rise up from the ground in a completely new and wonderful state. This is what happens with seeds when they are sown and they grow into wheat plants or apple trees or, or magnificent oaks. And Paul wants the Corinthians and us to understand that that this is what happens also 
when the lifeless bodies of believers are sown into the ground. But he adds a reminder that, that this whole resurrection thing is God's idea and design. Not just some directionless, unplanned natural process. If God's intention is that the body we die and are buried with gets swapped out on the last day when Christ returns for something new and wonderful, well, then we can look at other examples in God's creation of such differences by His design between things. So he goes on. Flesh is not all the same kind. Instead, people have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish yet another. There are also celestial bodies and bodies on earth, but the glory of the celestial bodies differs from that of the bodies on earth. There's one glory of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another in glory. One thing here that is worth noting for our age is how Paul affirms that people are not animals and animals are not people. Evolutionary thinking and teaching today blurs the distinction, calling man just a more highly developed animal. And, and some take this even farther, suggesting that we should treat animals as, as though they have the same rights and value as humans. And of course, this isn't really bringing animals up so much as it is bringing people down. And soon such ideas result in people treating each other as animals, devaluing the disabled, the different, and the dying, and the unborn, seeing others only as, as creatures who are there to, to satisfy one's own animal desires, and much, much worse. But we are different, as the Lord has designed all His creation. And there are differences also in glory. A huge hunk of rock here on earth may be just a, a dull and uninteresting feature of the landscape. But the huge hunk of rock that is the moon gives us light and helps govern the night. And while the moon shines brightly in the dark, the sun rules the day in such brilliance that we cannot even look at it. These differences, Paul wants us to understand, are familiar enough that, that the idea that there will be a, a glorious upgrade from the body we die with to the body that we rise with should not be hard to understand. He goes on. That is the way the resurrection of the dead will be. What is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown as a natural body. It is raised as a spiritual body. Simply put, the body that we will get at the resurrection when Christ returns to, to call us up out of our graves and then take us with Him home to heaven, the bodies that we get at the resurrection will not be the same as the body that we had. It will not be just a patched up version of what was it will not even just be different from what it was. It will be immeasurably better, imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. In Philippians 3.21, Paul speaks of how Jesus 
will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Which means that we will be perfect without fault or blemish or any of the weaknesses that plague us now in our lives on earth. And just as this addressed the objection of the the fools in Corinth who rejected the resurrection of the body because it didn't make enough sense to them, so it also speaks to two more modern tendencies. The first is focusing our energies and attention only on our lives in these bodies on this earth. But the truth of the glorious resurrection bodies that await God's people should give us all a very helpful shift in perspective and priorities while we live in these natural bodies. Because we know that this life, with all of its pains and pleasures, desires and distractions, is not all there is. In fact, there is infinitely more promised to us in the life to come with an existence that is immeasurably better. The other modern error that Paul's arguments here addresses is the way that so many think of the life to come. They imagine believers' existence in paradise as some kind of formless, ethereal, and intangible thing, as as though we will just perhaps float around on clouds for eternity. But just as John's visions at the end of Revelation clearly show a real and physical new heavens and new earth that will be our home, so here Paul makes very clear that we will have real and physical new bodies at the resurrection. We will experience eternity, God's presence, and the fellowship of all of the rest of God's family together there with us, not as mere spirit beings, but as perfected creatures, just as the Lord intended us to be at the creation, body and soul, with our hearts and minds completely aligned with Him and His will, and no pain or problems, no troubles or tears, no injuries or illnesses or impotence. And that will be one. Now we can also be honest here. We kind of wish that the Holy Spirit told us even more, a lot more than what Paul gives us here. We are naturally curious about these spiritual bodies that we will receive when Jesus comes to take us home. How old will we appear? Will people who died as infants and people who died at 100 both rise as adults in their prime or or somehow reflect in perfection what they were like on earth? Will we all know each other? Will we recognize the people that we knew on earth or Or will they have changed so much and we have changed so much that that we'll have to get to know each other all over again? Which, of course, won't be a problem because we'll have all eternity to do so. We have many questions. But God did not think it good or wise to answer them for us. But as He always does, the Holy Spirit makes sure that we know what is necessary, what is important, and what is helpful for our faith. And so here he has Paul bring us back. Bring us back to Christ and how all this connects to what is most essential to our faith. 
and our hope of eternal life in heaven. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living natural being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, that which is spiritual is not first. Rather, first comes the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man made of dust, so are the people who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so the heavenly people will. Just as we have borne the image of the man made of dust, let's also bear the image of the heavenly man. Again, we see the Lord's wisdom and love in all of this. This is all part of God's plan for sinner's salvation, and it's all God's doing. We follow Adam in our natural body and existence, but we follow Christ, the last Adam, in our spiritual body and existence. In resurrection, the earthly is exchanged for the heavenly. Now those whose religions or philosophies suggest that we begin our existence as heavenly spirits and that bodies are only added later as, as temporary accommodations until a, a greater plane of existence is achieved are, are quickly corrected by Paul here. We begin as dust, as our father Adam began when God created him. The natural and earthly precedes the spiritual and heavenly. But both, when we come into being in our mother's womb and when we are ushered into eternity at the resurrection, we are fully human. Body and soul together, essentially unified as one person. Death, when the soul and body separate, is the aberration, the unnatural interruption of our being and design. But of course, that's what sin is, what sin did and what sin does. Adam and Eve sinned and brought death and corruption into the world, and they passed their guilt and imperfection down to every one of their descendants. And we follow in their tragic footsteps with our own abundance of disobediences to God's will and commands. We rebel against Him only because we want our way instead of His. And all of this interrupts our loving Creator's plan for us. Our sin merits death and damnation, which is why God sent us a second Adam. Sent us His own Son, Jesus, born into our world as one of us with human body and soul so that He might bear our sin and guilt in Himself and pay its price for us. He lived the perfect life of obedience we could not. And He suffered the punishment and died the death we deserved. And He did it all from love and in mercy. Christ saved us with His death and his, with His resurrection so that we might not only be free of our slavery to sin, free of God's wrath at our guilt, but that we might also be set free from these bodies that, that are corrupted by sin, and that death lives within and death eventually takes. All who trust in Jesus and what He has done for us will have what He has. What He so lovingly and at such a great cost obtained for us. 
eternal life in perfected spiritual bodies that we will have to live forever with Him in paradise. That is God's plan. And it's a great one. It is exactly the one that we needed and definitely the one that we desire because it's the only one that gets us what we need and changes us as we so desperately want to be changed. The Lord has told us all we need to know about it. Yes, it is good to know some things about what life will be like after we are raised from the dead, even though we may not understand them all or be satisfied by them all. But the most important thing to know is what is at the center of all Christian faith, the cross of Christ and the empty tomb of our Savior, the gospel message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. This is what secures us eternal life. And this is what gives us not only hope for this life, but the confidence of perfection, peace, and bliss for the life to come. God told us all we need to know about what to expect when we're resurrecting. And that's more than enough, isn't it? So trust it. Hold on to that truth and that understanding. Let it comfort you when your perishable natural body is showing the signs of age or cancer or corruption or disease. Let it encourage you when you feel your body is dishonoring the soul that inhabits it. Let it strengthen you when you just feel too weak to do whatever it is you need or want to do. Look forward to the perfection that awaits you. Count on the power that will fill and move you. Someday, whether sooner or later, you will rise again. Rise to glory and rise to paradise, a perfect place and an imperishably perfect new body. Remember this. We are no longer bound to these bodies of death bequeathed to us by our father Adam. Instead, we are now able and rejoice to bear the image of Christ our loving brother the last Adam, who by his death and resurrection has won for us something glorious, something perfect, and something powerful. This is our hope. This is our power. This is our confidence. And so we will hold on to this in truth and hope and confidence and joy for this life and forever. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.